0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Mike Fiorello, the founder of Optimology, and previously a growth product manager and head of optimization at InVision. InVision is a digital product design platform powering the world's best user experiences. We chatted about Mike's experience at InVision and his journey transitioning from conversion rate optimization to product growth when they realized they were hitting diminishing returns on the CRO experiments being run. We discussed how they calculated the sample size required for tests and the statistical significance, how they prioritize experiments to run, and their process of building context for these experiments through quantitative and qualitative research. We also discussed how testing mitigates opinions and how Envision accidentally increased retention by focusing on virality. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest-growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How
1: do you build a habit forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. If
0: you need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, Andrew. Doing great. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, Mike, I mean, we've been chatting for quite a while now, and I know you've gone on to a new journey yourself, uh, starting to work as a growth consultant, uh, which we'll touch on a little bit in a, in a bit. Um, but I want you to talk today about your experience when it came to your time at InVision. Um, for the listeners, uh, maybe you just want to give us a little bit about what InVision is and uh, what was your role at InVision?
1: Uh, Yeah, for sure. So Envision is a product design and collaboration platform. So it's a place where designers can create prototypes of the different web and mobile experiences they may be working on. And they can share those with their team and collaborate on them. And so I I joined the company first uh, to head CRO on the marketing team and later moved into the product and helped to put together our product growth team. And we're focused on areas like activation, retention, virality, et cetera.
0: Interesting. Uh, you said you started out in, in CRO. Um, how did you make that transition from um, CRO to product manager and growth? And what were some of your earlier responsibilities? How did that transition over time between the roles?
1: Yeah. So when I joined, Envision had recently launched their enterprise product. So prior to that, it was... Only a self-serve um, platform, and they launched for enterprise. And the priority became to generate leads from the website and within the product. And there really were not any good um, touch points within those areas to capture leads. So we started to experiment with calls to action to get an enterprise trial, both on the the website and in the product, and. Uh, did a lot of iteration around figuring out where the best touch points were to capture leads and what the best um, offers were, to whether it was uh, scheduling a demo or getting an enterprise trial. And after a while, we realized that um, we we're hitting a point of diminishing returns and we were generating a lot of high quality leads, but the focus really needed to be product usage and user growth. Um, so we we started to turn more towards activation retention. And we found through some of the CRO experiments that we were getting really effective um, and uh, high impact results within the product. And so we, we started looking at how can we drive virality through the in-product experience, getting users to share more prototypes. When they shared them, how do, can we get the visitors to those prototypes to start collaborating and leaving comments. And so there was just a, a natural kind of transition from some of the stuff we were doing on the marketing side into the product.
0: That's very interesting. And you, you mentioned as well, like, uh, reached a point of diminishing returns when it came to sort of the experiments you were running on the CRO side. How did you get to that point when you sort of realized that yes, okay, now uh, whatever we start to do from here, we we're not seeing the returns we were seeing first. What was that infliction point when you said, okay, let's let's switch focus?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really came as a result of running a lot of experiments and seeing that uh, when we first run these tests, we were getting when we were finding winners, they'd be you know sometimes. 20, 30% improvements in the um, essentially the sign-up rate on on these um, landing pages. And after a while, we just we were finding it hard to find statistically significant improvements. Um, and so essentially we we realized that we were probably gonna get a better return for our investment by focusing on things in the product to drive activation and to actually get more users using the product within these target accounts that we were going after for the enterprise product, because if we could get more people using the product within one of the companies that was then requesting an enterprise demo, it was much easier to to sell the tool to a company that had, you know, 50 or hundred people already using it than one that was just kind of starting out with the tool. So that, um, we just realized that we were going to get, um, we're actually going to be able to monetize better if we focused on product usage.
0: Very, very interesting. So it sounds as well a little bit like you have the use case where you have quite a few people maybe joining Envision within an organization in bigger companies uh, with not really having an official uh, company account yet. And then somehow somebody in the organization comes along and says, wait a second, we have these multiple accounts going on in Envision. We need to bring them together. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of the case uh, that you're talking about when it comes to enterprise? And uh, is that how you sort of see the natural progression and in moving into talks?
1: Yeah, so it could have happened in a couple ways. One is they may have seen on our marketing site um, a call to action to get a demo of Envision Enterprise and they might have seen us um, certain messaging about features that they'd be able to access with Enterprise that they didn't currently have in self-serve. Uh, so that was one way. Another way was... Um, They would be hitting certain limits within the self-serve products, and they would only be able to use those features that they were trying to access if they upgraded to enterprise. We found that they would typically convert better if it was um, the latter. So if they were trying to use something like custom workflows that was only available in the enterprise products, we knew that they had a desire and had motivation to use one of those features that was only available in the enterprise products. So they would typically convert a lot better.
0: Cool. Um, you mentioned something as well earlier around statistical significance and the diminishing the returns on the test. I want to dive a little bit deeper into that before we move on to the work that you did on activation and onboarding. Um, when it came to these tests, maybe you just want to talk us through the listeners what a typical test would look like and how you would go about calculating the statistical significance and sample size for the test that you are running.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, essentially the the way I would always do it is I'd figure out, okay, how much traffic is currently visiting this page or this specific step in the flow that we're going to be trying to um, run an experiment on? And what's the current conversion rate? Um, So essentially, let's say it's, you have a thousand people per month hitting this particular page and the conversion rate is 10%, you can then plug that into a sample size calculator, tells you how much traffic you need to run the test and for how long. And so we'd always do that to ensure that it made sense to run the experiment. And the other piece that I I didn't mention is you need to also have an idea of what the expected improvement's gonna be on that page. Um, So if you expect you can have a big improvement Your the sample size requirement is going to be a lot smaller and so you're more likely to get to significance faster whereas if if you think the improvement might only be one percent or really low it's going to take quite a while to get to that uh, significance level so we'd always want to do that kind of sample size calculation and make sure that it made sense to run the experiment that we're thinking of doing and that would go into our prioritization exercises where we'd figure out what what tests to be running next.
0: And in prioritization as well, did you have any specific frameworks that you went about categorizing the different experiments? Maybe you want to talk us through how you prioritize what to run and when?
1: Yeah, definitely. So we used a pretty standard framework. So um, essentially the expected impacts of the experiment, the probability that it would succeed. And that that probability was based on how much evidence did we have that this test actually made sense to run. So um, we did a lot of things like user testing and looking at analytics data to figure out, get some insights around what tests might make the most sense to improve a specific part of the funnel. Uh, and then the third piece that we looked at was the effort involved to actually build the experiment. And uh, that would typically involve talking to the engineering team and getting a rough sizing of the work and also thinking about the design effort involved to build something.
0: Very interesting. And uh, in terms of like the the context that you had in the research that went in, so you mentioned you did a bit of user research and then also looking at analytics uh, and feedback coming through. Uh, How, much of a balance was made in between how you prioritize experience between user feedback and analytics. Um, And did they, did you use them interchangeably? Did one have more weight over the other?
1: Yeah. So the analytics data would really help us figure out where we want to test and identify where the problem areas were and, and help us estimate the impact that we could have on a test. And so we'd know how many people are, visiting this part of the flow and what's the existing conversion rate from one step to the next. So analytics would really help us kind of come up with that information, but then to try to understand why something might be broken, we really had to go to the qualitative research and that would typically give us more specific ideas about how we might go about fixing the
0: issue. Having the the what and the why together really helps give you that full picture and combining analytics and feedback really uh, helps add additional context and gives you more confidence as well when running tests. So let's fast forward a little bit now uh, and then you moved on from the CRO, you realized there was diminishing returns and you wanted to move into product. and you said you focused uh, on virality to begin with in the terms of share links. Do you want to talk us through a little bit about that process and what you discovered?
1: For sure. So we focused on share links because we realized that because Envision's a a collaboration tool. So essentially the way it works is that a designer would sign up for an Envision account. They would create a prototype, build it, make it functional, and then they would share it for feedback. Uh, They'd share it within the company. And so we typically saw a lot more traffic visiting share links than we would see in the core product because one designer might share it with 10 or 20 people. So we realized we were getting all this traffic from ShareLinks, but we were not necessarily converting those users, those anonymous visitors to ShareLinks into actual uh, registered product users. So we started running some experiments on ShareLinks themselves. And the way that we could convert them was we would have to get those people to collaborate on the prototype. That was typically through commenting. We learned pretty quick that a lot of users did not even realize that they could leave comments on prototypes. And that was, in some ways, that was a byproduct of how prototyping and Envision works. It's really meant to be something that looks like a real product. So you don't necessarily want a lot of Envision's UI to be on top of the prototype. You want it to look and feel real but we also realized that there was a bit of a problem in that people just did not know they could leave comments so one very quick experiment that uh, we ran was we just added a tooltip on top of the comment toggle switch and just made it, made people aware that they could start collaborating on this by uh, enabling the comment mode and that alone there was a improvement in collaboration behavior on prototypes, just through that one simple experiment. And so we realized that there was a lot of low hanging fruit that we could tackle, uh, related to collaboration. And so we did some other stuff. So as an example, users were not required to create accounts to leave comments and because of that, we were having a hard time retaining them and and making them part of, of the organization's Envision account. So we thought, well, why don't we try just requiring everybody to create an account in, in order to post a comment? And there was a little bit of resistance to this because the general conception was that if we did that, we would... Hurt the engagement rate, so people would not want to leave comments if they had to sign up for an account. But we said, okay, why don't we just test it and see what happens? And we ran the test, and we saw that it actually had very little impact on engagement. So th- there was a slight drop, but it was only maybe three or four percent on the comment rate. But we had a massive improvement on the registration rate through ShareLink, so that was up like over a hundred percent. So we realized, okay. The, the benefit of requiring people to sign up to comment uh, definitely outweighs the cost. And so we ended up implementing that. And the interesting thing is, even though we're not really setting out to improve retention per se, we found we did want to measure whether these were quality users coming in through commenting on share links. And when we compared the cohort of the users who were, required to sign up to post a comment versus the ones that were not we actually saw we were improving retention they were significantly more retained over time um, when they were actually creating accounts
0: wow that's interesting on a number of different levels i think the first thing is it almost sounds like you tend to agree with the skepticism of it in like hurting engagement but i think you mentioned one crucial thing that's really important was uh, let's just test it and see what happens. Uh, And this is often not something that's easily uh, done. It's easily said, but it's not easily done. How much of like a testing culture do you have it in vision and how sort of, what sort of was the appetite like for risk when it came to your experiments you're running? So
1: the, the company was, was quite open to testing. Um, However, Because it's a design platform and the audience are designers, we really had to make sure that there was a high quality bar for uh, the amount of design polish on the experiments that we were running. And so as long as we could show that we were building experiments that were well-designed and were not hurting the user experience and in general, improving the user experience, Uh, the company was pretty open to uh, running a lot of tests in different areas.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that as well. You you have a panel of judges judging your every design decision, and they're all designers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and they're all pretty active on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I can imagine. Uh, You mentioned as well then that you saw that there was an increase in retention uh, when it came to these specific users. Was that sort of like a... uh, in, by design was something that you like realized just going through this initiative and trying to increase the virality of the product yeah
1: it was it, it was really kind of a uh, something that we didn't even really consider at first. We were trying to improve the virality and in order to justify that the experiment Made sense to implement for all users, we wanted to make sure we were showing that we were increasing the quality of the users we were getting and so looking at retention was really a way to to look at the quality of the users we were getting and whether they were um, coming back to the product so it's one thing to just get people to sign up and leave a comment and never come back It's another thing to actually get them to to start collaborating more actively over time and so yeah, we were just looking at making sure we were doing the latter and and it turned out that we were getting people to come back um, more often over time.
0: Yeah. And it seems a little bit obvious as well, but did you see sort of any correlation between the number of active users in an account and then the overall accounts retention over time? And was there almost a point where there was some, maybe some diminishing returns in that as well, where it passed a certain point, it didn't really matter how many people joined that account.
1: Yeah. Uh definitely there was a correlation between the number of active users in an account and the retention of that account. And that's part of the reason that on the enterprise side the retention was extremely high. And there's actually um, the retention revenue retention was over a hundred percent on the enterprise side uh due to expansion. And so hundred percent. We knew that if we could get more people within a company using Envision, they were more likely to convert. Our assumption was always the more people we could get in an account, the better. So we, we were never satisfied when we hit a certain number of active users with an account. We were always trying to generate more active users within that company. So anybody who might've been involved in the design process, which could be hundreds of people within a company, if you include everybody that's looking at prototypes and all the stakeholders, uh, we wanted them all to be using the product.
0: So Envision is a product for the whole company. Uh, interesting in that as well. Like, so you're trying to onboard new users all the time within an organization. You're doing things to try and encourage share links and people signing up. Um did you sort of treat anyone in the organization differently when it came to the use of the product? Because they'll have different use cases. So if you have a stakeholder um, who's been viewing a uh, prototype, his use case is obviously going to be very different to the designer who designed the prototype. So uh, how did you treat different users when it came to your onboarding and activation efforts?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting question because that became a big priority Uh, over time on our growth team because Envision started releasing features that were not necessarily geared only towards designers, which originally was the case. So an example of that was Inspect. That was a tool to allow developers to inspect prototypes to get things like CSS codes and, and values that they could use as they were Developing the actual designs that uh, the designers were offering them in the prototypes. And so we started seeing, after releasing that product, a really high percentage of developers signing up for Envision. And then we also saw a lot of product managers over time starting to sign up and they want to create their own prototypes. And Envision also released a tool called Freehand, which was a way to create lower fidelity wireframes and and sketches and things along those lines and that was starting to attract a wider audience. So um it became clear over time that we needed to improve the onboarding so that it worked not just for designers but different personas as well. And that really centered around a research project we did to understand what the jobs to be done were of these different personas and how how they were going to get value out of the products and we essentially rebuilt the entire onboarding flow to one understand who the person was that was signing up whether they were a designer a developer a product manager etc and In addition to that, we want to understand what their goal was for signing up for the product. So it could be they were creating a prototype from scratch and they did not have a design yet. It could be that they already had screens designed and they just wanted to turn those into an interactive prototype. Or it could be that they were just brainstorming new ideas. So we would ask them what their goal was. And then based on that answer and based on who they were, they would get a completely different onboarding flow and so just as a a quick example somebody who is creating a prototype from scratch and didn't have any designs yet it didn't make sense to drop them into the web product to build a prototype because that assumes they already had the screens designed what they had to do was design their screens in a tool like envision studio which was a screen design tool that we released or sketch using our craft plugin And so the next step they would get in the onboarding was to download one of those tools and we'd make it very clear to them that they had to first design their screens in their desktop and then sync them to Envision um, through one of those two tools that they downloaded. So we found that by tailoring the onboarding based on the persona and the job to be done, we had a much higher activation rate than previously where everybody was getting the same onboarding flow.
0: Yeah, I think as well when it comes to personas and jobs to be done specifically as well, it's it tends to be maybe a little bit more difficult or easier said uh, than done. It's one of those things as well that requires quite a bit of effort to actually get right because uh, you end up uh, trying to see what how do bucket users into different personas when it comes to it. So what are the sort of the jobs that actually trying to be achieved by these specific sets of users? And then you can almost go down an endless path uh, when it comes to the different use cases. So what was the process that you took to understand what these jobs to be done were um, when it came to adding them to your onboarding flow?
1: Yeah, so there were essentially two parts to that. So our data team did a bunch of work to understand what the... Right activation metrics were for different personas uh, so in the past we had we had one main activation metric which was creating a prototype and sharing it, but that obviously is not the right metric for somebody who might be getting invited to view a prototype and may just want to comment on it so the the data team looked at various personas and they looked uh. We weren't asking people what their role was, but using tools like Clearbit, we were able to infer what the role was for all our, not all, but probably about half of our users. And um, so the data team essentially came up with a few different activation metrics and said, okay, if somebody's a developer, they're more likely to be retained if they use Inspect and they access... Uh, CSS codes on a prototype versus a designer who would be creating something and sharing it versus a stakeholder or an executive who may be just leaving a comment on a prototype. So that was one piece of the puzzle. And then the other piece was doing qualitative research. And we had a UX researcher who did a bunch of customer interviews to understand what a user's job to be done was right after they signed up. So we were Target people who just signed up for the product, interview them, and really understand, ask them things like, what was your main goal for signing up? Uh, What were you looking to do? Um, How did this need arise? And how did you hear about us? And what was your first experience like? Things along those lines.
0: Yeah. You mentioned as well using the service Clearbit. So for the listeners, uh, Clearbit's is a service. It's an API that allows you to enrich your data and get more insights on your users so they have quite a, a lot of information around uh, their job titles company company size location that you can enrich your data automatically with uh, i find it really interesting as well uh, that you took this approach by not actually asking the users because this is something that came up in a prior interview that typically users don't really have do a good job of selecting uh, like a role or persona because it tends to be quite difficult into categorize it. So if you're mm-hmm. uh, working in products, but you're also um, on the growth team, but you're in the product growth team, it gets a little bit complicated. And that's just one example. But just where you see yourself mm-hmm. sitting. So how did you actually then go about this? So you pulled in uh, all the the data through Clearbit. You had around fifty percent of your users with enriched data. What was the process then around like classifying uh, users into the different roles? Again, because you needed to do it on your end, even though you were pulling the roles from um, like their sources, their public sources. How did you classify them?
1: Yeah, so our data team had scripts that essentially would say, because the Clearbit roles were quite specific. So it could be like UX uh, UX designer or a mm-hmm. front-end developer, things like that. Uh, so they had scripts that essentially said, okay, if it's one of these 10 titles, let's just classify them as a developer, and and so on and so forth for the different key personas. Um, so yeah, that was essentially left to them, thankfully, to figure that problem out.
0: Yeah, but that's definitely a very interesting approach as well. Uh, and then next up you had, you mentioned you had your user researcher, UX researcher working and doing customer interviews on the jobs uh, to be done side. Um, from there then, would you take the specific personas that you had highlighted, you have your jobs to be done, and that was formed the basis of the different onboarding. But how did you then prioritize which flow and setup you wanted to optimize first? Because obviously, there, I imagine there's quite a few different use cases and flows. What was the, the process in that?
1: Yeah, so essentially, in terms of the persona-specific onboarding, that was looking at what the the top um, roles were that were signing up. And that was by far, that was designers and developers second. And the other piece to that was figuring out, okay, what goal did people have when they were signing up? And there were essentially three or four kind of main goals so it could be creating a prototype, it could be uh, brainstorming, it could be you, people wanting to collaborate on design. And so we essentially bucketed those goals into three or four main goals. And then there were, for a couple of those, there were sub goals. So by far, prototyping was the number one goal people were signing up for for Envision uh, to accomplish. And so we only had a sub-goal for for that, and the sub-goals were sending it out for user testing, so creating a prototype to then uh, run usability tests on, or creating a prototype to send to their team for feedback, or creating one to present live in a in a presentation. And Based on those sub-goals, we were able then to ensure that when they created their prototype, we're informing them and educating them about the right features to use to accomplish their their sub-goal. So the reason we didn't do the sub-goals for some of the other goals were that they were just less common. And so if somebody wanted to brainstorm ideas, we had a couple of tools available for that, freehand and boards. And so the next step was really just to give them the option to use one of those two tools. And there wasn't much additional value to figuring out what they wanted to do with their brainstorming. And and um, eventually it, it might make sense to um, personalize even deeper. But for us, we, we started with the main personas and the main use case.
0: And moved out from there. Uh, And you mentioned as well, then you looked at activation metrics and uh, sought to understand between the different personas and uh, jobs to be done, that there was obviously then different activation metrics that you'd be looking at. Uh, And I think you you took the typical approach as well in the beginning, which was just pick one uh, sort of key activation metric um, that you see tends to work well across the broader audience. And then you narrowed down then going forward. But at what stage did you sort of like a stage of the company and the growth and the size of the team actually decide to make that switch away from that single sort of metric of getting people to set up a prototype to the moment where you realize, okay, we actually now need to get a little bit more granular because people are using us for different reasons. And uh, the definition of activation is different for those users.
1: Yeah. So the main catalyst for that was just looking at the different, roles of people signing up and realizing that as Envision was launching new features that were moving beyond just uh, features targeting designers, there were a lot of non-designers signing up for the product. And also seeing that the activation rate and the retention rate from some of those non-designer personas was significantly lower. So there was an opportunity to like we were retaining, activating and retaining designers quite well because the product had been sort of optimized for that audience from the beginning. Uh, But it was really clear that that there was an opportunity to do a much better job in providing a better experience to other types of users that were signing
0: up. Yeah. Uh, I I think as well, like this is one thing, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge as well in the beginning for normally for smaller companies is, uh having one sort of metric when it comes to activation to follow and work with allows you to allow the team to get a little bit more focus. Um, the question as well was asking a little bit about when you decided, okay, let's, we realize this now, we need to give a little bit more focus to the different types of use cases. What sort of size was the team that you were working with in the growth team? Uh, had you expanded like in terms of headcount as well that allowed you to be able to experiment more and uh, execute on these? different um, metrics
1: so the the team had grown a little bit and we had two product managers about five engineers a dedicated designer and a data analyst working with us and we were all, all worked the VP of growth and so we we did have the ability to have part of the team focused on Things like virality or building our growth foundation, building the growth stack, and another part of the team focused on these onboarding experiments. So it did become easier to tackle uh, multiple problems at once over time. And, and that was just uh, kind of the, the evolution of how that happened and, you know, realizing that there was this need to, to really improve the the user onboarding.
0: Yeah, Cool. So we talked a little bit about activation onboarding a little bit around acquisition. Um, Was there anything that you did when it came to looking at retention um, and churn overall that didn't work that you tried?
1: Yeah. So one, one good example for something that didn't work was we tried to build a cancellation flow within the product where we asked people what their reason was for canceling their account and based on the reason they gave us we would then have an additional step that tried to provide some messaging and counter arguments and and counter those objections that they gave us to see if they may want to maintain their subscription and this is an idea that that came from looking at some of the cancellation flows of other best-in-class SaaS companies like Dropbox and, and a few others. And we felt like we could have, um, we could make somewhat of a dent in the can- cancellation rate by, by uh, doing this. It turns out we had pretty much no Im- impact on the cancellation rate. And I think it kind of goes to show you that if you're trying to fix retention and churn you really need to do it earlier on in the in the user's life cycle and you just make sure they're getting good value right from the beginning because if you wait till the very end and they've already decided they want to cancel there's really not a lot you can do to influence that decision now yeah i mean i think it, it is pretty late to be trying to do that the i think that it could work for certain companies so dropbox as an example have that kind of flow and, and they're dealing with a massive volume of accounts. And so they if they could get a 1% drop in the cancellation rate, that could be, you know, millions of dollars in in um, you know revenue for them. So I think it could still make sense at a certain scale, but if you're not at a massive scale, it's really hard to even be able to show a statistically significant improvement by running that kind of experiment. So it's probably better to use your resources to focus on something earlier on, like um, optimizing adoption or trying to just increase engagement of already active users.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes down as already just to taking the user psychology into, into mind as well. Like when a new user joins your product, they're really excited. They want to get started. They have a problem and they feel that your solution is there to solve it. Whereas at the end where someone's actually consciously coming into your product and trying to cancel it, uh, you can already see that you're not del- you haven't been delivering the value to them. They're, it's not been solving their problem and they're actually going through the effort of now trying to cancel the account. So definitely like focusing the efforts when users are most excited and ambitious about your product is definitely a much better spend of time. So just talking a little bit about your time now as well, Mike, obviously you've moved on from Envisioned, and uh, as mentioned in the beginning, you've started going into a bit of growth consulting. Um, maybe you just want to give us a brief overview of what you're doing at the moment, services, uh, anything that's interesting and relevant to the listeners. Yeah, for
1: sure. So I started a company called Optimology after um, leaving Envision, And the idea with that is I found working on growth, that often the best ideas would come out of user research and really spending a lot of time to understand where the areas of opportunity were, looking at analytics, doing user testing, surveys. And unfortunately, it can be hard to find the time to do that when you're working as a product manager. And you may have access to a user researcher, but they're probably not going to be dedicated to growth. So the idea with ophthalmology is really to to provide that research to companies and essentially come up with a backlog of experiments they could run that I I help them complete to identify the areas of uh, impact and and, um, come up with specific growth experiments to run. And so basically, I'm offering two things. One is a conversion audit where uh, I'll spend about three to four weeks doing a bunch of research to come up with growth experiments. And the other, um, the other service I'm offering is just general kind of growth consulting to help with building um, growth practice within the company and hiring and setting up uh, growth foundations and tools and things along those lines. So yeah, it's been a a lot of fun working with a a lot of uh, different types of clients and um, learning what what works for specific kinds of clients that might not work for others. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great experience.
0: What's been the biggest difference and biggest shift moving from an uh, in-house team working at Envision now to working as an outside consultant?
1: Well, I'd say the, the biggest shift is that, and this is kind of true in consulting in general, is that um, you... You can work and help on strategy, but you're not necessarily that heavily involved in the execution. So it's it's fun and growth to be able to come up with ideas and also run them and and uh, see what works and what doesn't. Uh, yeah, and, and when you're consulting, you're not necessarily um, gonna be involved in actually seeing which ideas end up um, making it into the product. So, that's I, I guess that's uh, probably the biggest difference is that you, you're just not as engaged on the on the execution side.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Unless you go and sign up for the different products that you work for, so then you can then see any changes that happen in that. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I uh, really, really appreciate the time and um, some great insights for the listeners. Uh, so, thanks very much for joining, and I wish you best of luck going forward now on the new journey. Okay.
1: Thanks, Andrew. And uh, keep up the great work with the podcast.
0: Thanks. Have a good one. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, Subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.